Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. If you're able, would you please stand in joining me to read God's Word? And our scripture today is from the book of Amos. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the noon moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds." Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day I will rise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never be uprooted, again be uprooted. For out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. There are many aspects of the Messiah's coming that the prophets uh, made claims about uh, his coming and said he would do many different things. What we're looking at in this Advent season is the different claims and the anticipations of the coming of the baby in the manger. 
And the one that we're going to look at this morning, drawn out by the prophet Amos, is that there would be one who would come and heal the world. And here's what we're going to see about Advent and the coming of the healing of the world. One, the subject of healing. Two, the barrier to healing. And three, we'll see the one who would heal. First, the subject of healing. So there was many uh, different parts of the book of Amos read because we can't sit here and read nine chapters. But I do want to kind of give you the the central message of the book. And uh, right here in the middle section in chapter 8, here's what he says in chapter 8, verse 6. He says, uh, excuse me, verse 5, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain again on the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ebeth small and shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may, that we may buy, buy poor for the silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the shaft of the wheat? Now, what's going on here? Well, silver is a synonym uh, for a debt or a loan that you would pay off a debt or a loan. And what's happening here is they're saying, uh, hey, those people who had to buy a sandal, uh, or those people who had to buy wheat, uh, let's make them barter silver with it. And what that means is that there are people in Israel who, for food and for clothing, they're going into debt to pay for it. Now, if you went into debt, you didn't, like, you know, go to the bank and declare bankruptcy or default on your credit card. You became a servant that you went to work off your debt on for some people. Now, why is this happening? Well, a little history. In, in 8th century uh, BC, uh, Assyria and Egypt, who are the great enemies of Egypt, uh, were actually weak. And what happened is that because of their weakness, Israel could control all the trade routes. And uh, they became very wealthy, very prominent, actually, in, th- in this point of history. And what would happen is that the wealthy class those who were aristocratic and could control the trade routes and those kinds of things began to hoard all the resources. And what happened is that all all these resources are coming in from these trade routes. All of the prominent people are hoarding these and even forcing people who are on the outsides of the classes for simple, basic things like food and clothing to go into debt and to servitude over these things. And to make it worse… The Mosaic law had prevented this. So if you go back and you read the book of Leviticus, uh, a couple things that were told about how God had set up society uh, to address these sorts of things is that uh, there was a Sabbath year. So every six years, uh, we're told in the book of Leviticus, within Israel, debts are to be canceled. And then every 50 years was the year of Jubilee, where all slaves are set free, all captives are set free, every debt is canceled, and it's just a year of celebration and proclamation of the Lord's coming. And none of this was celebrated. All of it was neglected, all of it was put away. And what Amos is giving here is something that makes us very uncomfortable because it's social commentary. And almost every time we begin to read this in modern 21st century sort of American culture, we get super afraid of all of the uh, historic social commentary that feels like a threat to the gospel or even to our modern American life. But what you have here in Israel are people who are hoarding resources and setting weak people up to fail continually, ensuring the poor people will never have any kind of way out. And almost every time that we begin to address this in our day in life, the subjects that come up are charity and kind of greed. 
But the way the book of Amos addresses it is that it's actually a matter of justice. Chapter 5, verse 7, this is what the Lord says, O you who turn justice to wormwood, that the Hebrew word there for wormwood is the word bitter fruit. It's as if you turn justice into a rotten piece of fruit on the back porch that's just decaying, and you cast down righteousness to the earth. Now, two considerations for this. On the one hand, let's just admit that us as an American people have no idea what to do with this part of the Bible because we live in expressive individualism in this American culture. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, just a year ago, uh, commenting on a ruling from the uh, Supreme Court, said this. He's like, here's what it means to be a person. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the significance of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under the compulsion of the state. Individuals can define for themselves what gives them their identity, what gives them their purpose in life, and their sense of meaning. It's a lot, but here's what he's saying. Look, we love it in American culture when it's like, hey, the government can't ever tell you who you are, can't ever tell you about your identity, can't ever tell you about your sexuality, can't ever tell you about what you should or should not pursue in this life, and we love and we celebrate that. And all the while, we're also looking at certain types of life and certain types of people and having questions. And what the Bible says is like, for us to look out at the world and to see people who are different from us in different classes from us struggling and hurting and things that are hard to deal with and us to go, ah, not my problem. I sort of live by my own accord. Look, the American government will come back you, but the book of Amos is here to confront you. Look, do you know what people are like that just say, hey, that's your problem, not mine? That's hell. And what we need to have got to do to, ter- to come to terms with Christmas is to, for a little bit, understand that our little individualistic life and our, the way that we define our individuality has got a breaking point when it comes to this subject and how God wants to introduce what His renewal will look like. The other consideration about this is that there are some of you who deeply care about this subject, uh, who see things that uh, you feel like a, an ostracized or a hurt part of society uh, is really set up to fail, uh, that there are people who are never given a chance, uh, there are people who just have a hard time with things and are, no one will ever come to help them. Um, and you say yes, and you, and you criticize the church and say, how dare they, you know, uh, they're the people who, who ruin society, they don't ever help society. And you care about justice, but not with, in terms of a relationship with God. And the question that I have with this text is, Why? Why do you care? Uh, do you remember the, the, the 80s uh, Christmas song um, where all those artists came together, Feed the World? <laughs> uh, feed the World lyrics, feed the world, let them know it's Christmas time. I mean, f- think of the logic of this. Um, I mean, th- that's a powerful action that we ought to be pushed into giving up resources, moving towards people who have less Uh, sacrificing, caring. Why? Because of a Christmas tree? 
Like, why would you sacrifice and lay stuff down if you believe in nothing? Like, if you don't believe there's a God, and you don't believe there's a hope for renewal, and you don't believe that there's a Savior who actually came to bring about justice, why do you care when there are things that make you angry? Why are you not just living your individualistic life? And the reason is because Christmas is knocking on your door. Look, what Christmas comes to do in the form of Jesus in the manger is something no other worldview offers. Because there are all sorts of sentimental things at this time of the year. There are all sorts of hopeful thoughts about relationships and, and, and better years in 2023 and things that we look forward to. But there is no worldview. There is nothing in the Middle East. There is nothing in the Far East. There is nothing south of the equator that declares that the hope for the world is someone to come and to make all things that are broken in this society right. Uh, a Sri Lankan uh, theologian, uh, Vinash Ramachanda, writes this. He says this so well. Salvation, Christian salvation, lies not in the escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for the world in any religious system or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. That is why when some people say that there is salvation in all kinds of faiths, I ask them, what salvation are you talking about? Because no faith holds out the promise of eternal salvation for the world. The way the cross, the resurrection, and the incarnation of Jesus do. Look, here's the point. The healing anticipated in Christmas is way more than just the forgiveness of sins. And you can't fully understand that and get clarity until you get clarity on the subject of Christmas. And that's the restoration of all things and to bring about justice in an unjust, broken world. That's the subject of healing. Secondly, though, there's a barrier to this kind of healing for our world. Uh, in chapter 5, uh, the, uh, the prophet says this. He says, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. This is glad tidings, by the way. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, this would have rocked an assembly in Israel uh, and, and amazed them and likely very much offended them. Because what they told themselves is that as long as we keep these festivals and we keep up our religious rituals and we attend the temple and we eat these meals and we proclaim these songs, we are in good favor with God. And God is pleased with us. And what God is saying here is I won't have any of that. He says, keep your annoying religious ceremonies away and let justice roll down like water in righteousness like a mighty stream. Not let it drip. Not let it be a one-time moment. That is, do not sing and proclaim things to me and turn and have no relationship and neglect of those around you. Now, almost every single time the prophets uh, speak, if you read them, there's, there's sort of a pattern to these. Uh, this is a little, you know, hermeneutic explanation. 
they have a, a, a continual pattern of beginning with oracles that are spoken to Israel and to the nations, and then there's a promise of hope, and there's a plan of healing, and there's restored relationship in the end. But what you have to know is that every single time God gives these oracles of judgment, He always gives them to Israel before the nations. And what that means is that God deeply cares not just about what we say and what we profess and what we think, uh, others think we believe, but He cares about the practice and the implementation of what we're actually professing. And when we fail to do it with our fellow human being, the oracles are the most judgmental. Because what is so egregious in the eyes of God is the proclamation that others may, should experience something that you yourself never have. God is saying, how dare we look at the world and call them into repentance and faith and restoration when there's no part of our life and our community that's practicing that. When we do that, it, 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 it grieves the Lord. It makes Him furious and says, I will have none of it. Look, what do we learn here about the barrier of healing? Divorcing what you profess from how you live is about the most egregious sign of unbelief in the Bible. And the place that maddens God the most is when it's done at the expense of our fellow human beings. Maybe one of the most acute places of this is uh, in Matthew 25 when Jesus is speaking on the end times, and He says this in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 35, very famous passage. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer Him, saying, Lord, did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, or give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he is saying, how we relate to our human beings is reflective of how we relate to God. So when God says, don't come to me, don't come to me, and give me lip service for this, and turn around and, stomp, and stample on your, your fellow neighbor. See, it's, it's because of our identity that the way that we treat other people is so acute at the point of Christmas. There was a story in 2004, I'll illustrate this way, of a, a man named Ayers in Charleston, South Carolina, who was um, charged with assaulting a young girl. And when the police came after him, he held his wife hostage and killed her. And when they arrested him, while egregious and horrific as those crimes were, what really troubled them is that this man was a police officer. And the marshal who found him said this, it is especially abhorrent when individuals sworn to uphold the law commit such a crime. 
we remain focused on seeing that this fugitive is brought to justice. And that's what God is so frustrated at with the people of Israel. Look, it is one thing for everyone in America to just abhor their resources and to walk by people and to neglect anyone who's not in their individual path of influence. But it's a whole other thing for the church to do it. And to look at the world and to continue to sing songs of hope and promise and longing and healing and to never have it part of our life. See, what the gospel is designed to do is to come into our life in a personal way and to help us understand how unjust forgiveness is. That we, look, we have nothing to bring to God. Look, you, who you are and who, how God wants us to come is Jesus is, is poor in spirit. That is coming to Him with absolutely nothing in our hands and saying, I've got no hope. I've got nowhere to stand. I've got nothing to build my life on or build my resume on before you and to plead with mercy before Him. And when we come that way, God doesn't grit His teeth and say, well, I'll think about it. He says, my child, that's how I wanted you to come. And He comes after us and loves us. And what the gospel says is that story is meant to be sealed by the Holy Spirit on our soul in such a way that when we look at fellow human beings and we see them, and you literally see somebody without anything in our hands, God is saying, the gospel ought to connect the dots for you. So that when you, when you, when you pursue justice and healing in this world, it doesn't mean God will love you more and then accept you. But it probably means that you finally understand that He does love you and He does accept you. Look, it's not an it's, the gospel is not encouragement. This is not advice. This is not inspiration for us to go write a poem on. It's an announcement that God has come to flip this world upside down and to bring about healing and justice in a world that will continue to create new socialized ways of stopping that out and isolating it out. And when the church is beginning to believe the gospel, it's when we sit here and worship and sing and meditate on God's Word and we encourage one another in community and repentance and faith, and then we have an outward ministry to the world that says the parts of the world that will never, ever, ever be pursued for healing, we will go there, and we will do it. And the barrier to healing in this world and those outside in our society of getting a part of that healing is when we disconnect the dots of the gospel to the way we are supposed to live. What Christmas wants to do is break down that barrier. Tell us the subject of healing is that justice one day is coming. And help us have a sober moment that says, secondly, the barrier to it is our hypocrisy. So what do we do with this? Thirdly, the only hope of Christmas is to look to the one who will heal. In chapter 9, here's what it says in verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. What God is saying is that the injustices 
that have happened in and around Israel. And those that have happened under the watch of the church in American culture. He says, I cannot let you stamp on one another. I cannot continue to let injustice live and thrive in this world. And so, one of the thoughts that some of us might have in this room right now is to say, well, should, should, should this be all we do? Should we just devote all of our time, all of our efforts, and should we only be about helping and caring for the poor? And I think the Scriptures would come and say, no. Because actually, that's a quick slide into religious pride and hypocrisy in itself. There's a place, it's a fascinating place in John chapter 12, where Mary is anointing Jesus' feet with oil. And Judas says, whoa, this is a waste of money. Because there are poor people out there and there are ostracized people, and we should, we should sell this oil and take the money and give it to the poor. And you know what Jesus says? He says, no, give it to me. Because if you do that, here's what will happen. You will begin to do that in spite of me and at the neglect of me. And what God is calling us to understand here is that there is a deep sobriety to us understanding that justice must be done. And yet we long for justice, and some of us don't know what to do with justice. But when God comes and says, justice must be done, what hope is there? The promise of the end of this book. Verse 11, he says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and build it as in the days of old. David's fallen tent just refers to David's kingdom a descendant of David in Bethlehem who would be a political ruler and come and stomp out all the enemies of justice is what the book of Amos is anticipating here. That there would be one who would come and look at all the nations who abuse people, who take advantage of people, who step on the marginal parts of society, and there will be one who will come with a sword and put them all to rest. But any of the belief in Israel who thought that did not read the rest of the book of Amos. Because what it says in the next verse, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who were called by my name. You know who Edom was? It was the most egregious enemy of Israel. It was the nation who they thought, well, we could maybe make you know, forgiveness with Assyria. We could maybe make reconciliation uh, with these people. But in no way did they ever think it was possible with Edom. And this says what will happen is there will be one who will come, who will look at the parts of this world, the parts of societies that you think, those two will never get along. They will never be in fellowship. The things that have been done between them are so egregious, are so hateful, are so painful, that the hope of even sweeping it under the rug and trying to live in the same world on opposite parts of town and just neglecting one another and pretending to you have your life and I'll have my life that's not even possible with this kind of hostility. And it says there will one who will come and will heal and restore even that. That will bring about a world where there's no more poverty, there's no more greed, there's no more starvation, there's no more gluttony. There will be a king who comes and makes this world and the people within it and heal every part of it as the hymn says, for as the curse is found. And look, when you celebrate... 
One temptation can be to, to, to be afraid. Are, are we doing what Israel did? Every time we have fun, are we neglecting people out there? No. Because every time in the Bible, the hope for restoration is given. You know what it begins with? Celebration. That we ought to be people who, this afternoon, we celebrate. You know why? Not at the neglect of the margins of society, but at the hope that they will be brought in. And we celebrate in the anticipation of how the King will come and renew that world, and we will do that with everyone. But then it says this in verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes to him, who sows the seed in the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow within it. When it says that when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the language there for overtake means they will uh, bump up against one another. Now, the vision is this. This is how agri- uh, an agrarian society worked. There were seasons that all worked on uh, the farming and the sowing of all of these crops. So that you had one season uh, that had uh, a plowing, another that was reaping, another that was treading, and then another that was sowing. And then it's just the pattern continued and continued and continued. And you hoped there was enough to bleed into the next one so there would not be a famine or there not be starvation. But Amos is saying there will be a time when this king comes and he puts everybody together and you know what it's going to be like? There will be so much abundance. There will be so much overflowing that the seasons will run into one another. There, there will be so much to plow that, there will, <laughs> that when it's time to reap, they still will not be done plowing. And when they're reaping, and it's time to tread, it's like, let's tread all this. Well, there's still so much out there to keep reaping. And it's saying when the king comes, there's going to be a feast, a celebration, a physical, literal, restored earth where people who never thought they could get along will be in a room together, feasting and celebrating, and it won't be McDonald's. It will be the finest restaurants in the city where the people who you think never belong there are welcomed at the head tables. Look, Christmas is a promise about feasts to come and justice to heal. And how can it happen in an unjust world? Here's how. In Acts chapter 15, when the apostles are sitting around trying to make sense of all of the things that are happening in the world that God is doing, they quote Amos 9. You know what they say? They say, this is about Jesus. This is about the man who came to us, that he was the true Davidic king. He was the one who came not as the general, not as the one who stomped out the nations, but the one who came and served the nations. He didn't come on a throne. He came in a manger. He didn't come in the midst of the crowds sitting, uh, you know, up in a, in a kingdom. He came as an outsider, as a poor man, as an oppressed person. And the silver that Israel used to use to make the poor, ostracized people pay for food and clothing, Jesus himself, he was sold for silver. His whole life was unjust. None of it, even his trial, his whole death, 
all of it was illegal, was against the law, was unworthy of what he went through. And that same man who says to us, look, when, when you see me naked, you clothed me. When you saw me thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in need, you came to my help. You know when those places were most acute for Jesus? The cross. And you know what his people did? They walked away and did nothing about it. But what his death does is it makes it possible for unjust people like us and unworthy people like us to be welcomed into a feast and to be told that justice can still come into an unjust way of living. And what Christmas ought to do for you is it right now ought to give you a gift and a hope and a promise that a healed world is coming. And God has already given that to you spiritually and personally, and one day He will give it to us physically. And this powerful experience is not meant to leave you in neglect. It's not meant to inflate you. It's meant to wake you up and to send you out into the world. There's a crazy story uh, several years ago about a man named Jay Spites of Maryland who got an email that he may be related to somebody very significant in the continent of Africa. He went in for a DNA test and found out that he was an African prince. He was brought and he was told he was the ninth king of Alada. He got on a plane and flew to the nation. When he, was, when he went there, he was welcomed by 5,000 people cheering and shouting his name. He got out and uh, people began to bow to him. He began to bow back, not knowing any of the customs, and they said, you don't bow, you're the prince. We bow to you. He spent a whole day, or he spent five days in what they called prince school, learning how to be a prince, learning what it meant, learning the activity, learning the language, learning how to treat people, learning how to be treated, to go through all of the routine. The queen said that she was going to give him a new name, and called him this is hard to pronounce, Videkin Deke, roughly translated, the child who finally came home. But eventually Jay had to leave Africa and go back to his home here, the African prince. And when he got home, his wife said, I love you. Please take out the trash. Now, here, here's the point of Christmas. The baby came in the manger to give you a whole brand new identity and to bring you in your unjust life into a restored just kingdom and to give you all sorts of love, to give you all sorts of admiration, to give you all sorts of promises that give you a new identity. Not to make you arrogant and to throw you upon a throne, but to remind you, hey, don't forget to take out the trash. It always is fascinating. In the New Testament, Paul and Peter have a disagreement in Galatians 2, and they're talking about how the ministry of the gospel should go forward, and they dialogue about it, and as they depart, they say one thing, hey, don't forget the poor. That's what Christmas seals on our soul. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, 
There are so many people out there who we walk by, who we do nothing for. And I'm so grateful, Lord, for the small steps that our body here has tried to take, Lord, with just giving gifts to kids all around the world, trying to tangibly say you're loved, somebody wants you, somebody cares for you. Lord, help us, enable us more and more and more to let your pursuit of us, your kindness to us, be a wake-up call. Lord, that the justice that's coming in your kingdom, let it be something that we actually live out in, in this world, as wisely, and as freshly, and as hopefully as we can. It's in the name of the King we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.